Hey, welcome to Friday. Maybe I shouldn't be welcoming you to Friday, given there's only an hour left. It's 11 o'clock, 10.59, in fact. But, you know, it's still Friday. It's still Friday, so I can still say welcome to Friday, even if it's almost over. And it's after dark, so it's Friday night lights. That's what this episode is all about. Friday night lights. Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure where to begin, to be honest. I'd like to, I'd like to give this show uh, a different tone, but I'm not sure how to do that. I'm not sure how to inject it with a different tone right now. You know, it was a good day, though. I mean, it, we're getting warm weather. That's how you do it. You just start talking about the weather. You want a different tone? Just start talking about the weather. I took Batty over to his previous owner's house, and uh, he was really well-behaved with the puppy there. Uh, you know, his previous owner, Anna, her, she had a friend over, and he was just extremely nice to this new person. Because those are the biggest issues. He's extremely well-trained as far as being in the house goes. I mean, he knows to use a litter box if he can't hold his bladder until morning. You know, he knows how to use a litter box. And he's, he's great. He's very well-behaved on walks, very obedient. So he's a great boy. He's very well-trained. He just needs to be socialized a little better with both other dogs and people. And today, I'm just extremely proud of him. <laughs> you know, I loved my cats. I, you know, I'm just, I'm such a lover of cats. But I never necessarily felt the same pride I guess because they're just so naturally in their own zone. You know, cats are very much, uh, they're orderly. They have an ingrained sense of order. And for the most part, you know, yeah, yeah, you got to train them a little bit. But for the most part, they know what their system is. And most cats just live in that system. A dog, though, you kind of got to reinforce a system. You got to teach them a system and reinforce it. And with Batty, you know, it's like he just, he needs to learn getting along with other dogs and uh, being friendlier to new people. And today he just, he hit a home run. He hit a home run as far as that goes. I'm very proud. And it's weird too, especially right now, I'm having a hard time. Mornings are good. You know, in the mornings I wake up and I, you know, I meditate. I Right now I'm reading Gulliver's Travels. Book report coming soon. Book report coming soon on Gulliver's Travels. Great. So I didn't expect that book to be this sociological fiction. And I'll, I'll save the book report for when the book is done. But right now my mornings are very pure, but I'm finding in my downtime as the evenings go on, I'm just, I'm, I'm paying attention to these current events. And it's not consuming me in the sense that it's not giving me, you know, it's bothering me. But it's not, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm consumed by it. I feel like I have self-control. I feel like I'm in control of my situation. I feel like I'm balanced. In a time where everybody's wanting you to be imbalanced one way or another. And not everybody. There's definitely some voices of reason who I'm noticing. And in some cases who I'm, I'm letting them know. 
Because I think voices of reason, you need to let them know that they are being a voice of reason. And I'm not, and by voice of reason, I don't mean people that I agree with. Yes, to some degree, of course. Of course, the people I agree with are going to be voices of reason, but that doesn't only include people that I explicitly agree with. And in some cases, I've found ways to reach out to people just to let them know that I appreciate the work they are doing. You know, so often these days we you know, give these hollow public compliments or criticisms, you know, or even worse, try to destroy people's lives. You know, it's very public the way that we go about showing our appreciation as well as our frustration with people, to put it politely. Our appreciation and our frustration. So sometimes it's good, though, to reach out privately, the old way. The old way that we used to do things. Let someone know. I'm trying to make an effort to do to do that. To notice people. Make sure that they know that I noticed them. And not to do it when I don't mean it. And being mindful of the words I choose when I let somebody know that. Because that's important. Because nobody wants, you know, because, you know, I appreciate any nice thing anybody's ever said to me, really. But I also know when they chose their words thoughtfully, and not necessarily carefully, but thoughtfully when there's, they were very deliberate in their words, and those always stay with me, those sorts of compliments. And the same thing for criticisms, because I think if you choose your criticism very thoughtfully as well, even if it's not what you want to hear, you have an appreciation for it because you know it wasn't flippant. And that's called having a discussion, you know, and that's what's missing right now more than anything is no discussion. And that's a a scary thing when there's no discussion, when everything's moving very rapidly. But, you know, I have been paying attention to things more than I have in years, and that's because I don't feel like I really have a choice. I've thought about it. I've thought about whether I should just tune everything out, and I'm very good at doing that. You know, it's part of my own practice. It's part of just the way I live my life and the way I've been living my life for the last uh, three years or so, just learning how to tune things out that I know are just going to kind of corrode me, corrode me. And right now, I just don't feel like that's an option. I feel like I have to stay aware. And I guess, you know, I'm going to talk about something that I've talked about many times. I'm going to make some points here that I've made probably very recently, probably in the last couple of years. I'm going to say just these are common ideas. But I think this is a time where if you can hold on to the ideas that you've had for a while, that's important. And just to explain what I mean, suddenly a lot of people feel like they've achieved this newfound enlightenment. Or they feel like they have to change their tune to match the times. And I don't feel that way at all. I feel that the things that are true to me are the same things that were true two, three years ago, and not that I haven't changed, not that I haven't learned things, 
but I don't feel like what's going on in the world right now has forced me to suddenly morph in response to it. Because I don't think that it deserves that. I don't think it deserves to have that amount of control over me, for one. I don't think that I should allow current events to undermine the very careful work I've done inside of myself and also involving the things that I pay attention to and consume that have caused me to learn things. You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel that any of this undermines that. And it's not stubbornness. It's not fear. It's simply just, you know, I've thought about it. I've thought about whether this, what's going on right now, changes me in some way. And of course it does. But not in the way that it seems to be changing other people. Both those who are terrified of this almost, let's just call it an anarcho-communist attempt at revolution. Sure looks like one right now. Sure looks like a revolution. But it's all happened so quickly that I have to wonder if it's easy come, easy go. And that idea gives me strength. The fact that it could come about so easily makes me wonder if it could also go away very easily. Not that I want every aspect of it to go away. I think there are some potentially meaningful changes that could come out of this, but not the way that it's happening right now. Not the beliefs that are fueling this at this stage. The initial outrage, I understood that. Whether I supported all of the actions people were taking, all of the words people were saying, I understood that. Right now, I understand, but I can never accept it. I can never accept what we are hearing and what we are seeing right now. And I don't care what conclusions somebody wants to make based on me saying that. And I guess I have a dilemma whether I want to say that more vocally, whether I want to campaign it, you know, out there. And uh, saying on this show right now just feels like enough. And again, you know, I don't know, I don't even know who listens to this show anymore. I know one or two people occasionally, you know, give me feedback. But I can't accept what's going on right now. What does that mean? What does not accepting that mean? It's not out of stubbornness. But uh, I just know in my heart that what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is not an acceptable process. Especially because this descent into chaos doesn't seem to have a clear-cut goal. I walked downtown tonight and I walked by a sign that somebody had pasted on uh, a wall on the way downtown, and it, it listed five demands, and, you know, there was things like free health care, and it said no work, said nobody should, should have to work. The third was, uh, you know, some sort, of, some, some sort of other free thing that people want. Another one was everybody let out of prison, and the fifth one, I don't remember the last one was, but it just, it stood out to me where it was just basically the demands, and I don't know who who was demanding this, 
because there is an element of chaos and it's difficult to you have a lot of different people saying a lot of different things you have a lot of different people doing a lot of different things but this sign stood out to me this pasted on a wall and it was just these demands and I'm just it just seemed to seem to be a demand for chaos and there's no immediate way to meet these demands and when there's no immediate way to meet a certain set of demands that just leads to more frustration, resentment, and anger. And violence. And that's the thing, that's where we're, you know, there's already been violence. You know, and I made a mistake, you know, I think it was in the most recent episode, I made a comment that, you know, we're living in the most violent time since I've been alive. And I don't know that that's statistically true. Statistically, the current era, maybe not this exact moment, but the months you know, leading up to this moment, we're, they were some of the most peaceful in human history. You know, we come from a violent species. We come from a cruel people. There's also kindness there, too, which is how we've made it this far. We've had the capacity to massacre everybody for eons. But somehow some sort of order prevails, and... You know, it's not that we ever escape cruelty completely, and we definitely don't escape the legacy of cruelty. But statistically, and people have done the work on this, people who have gone far deeper into it than I, but we do live in a, a far less violent era of human history than ever before. And maybe that's why this moment seems like it, it's in such contrast to the years leading up to this, to even the months leading up to this, where we really seem to be entering a time of... And by violence, I just mean overall destruction and chaos. Violent movement of the body. And I don't believe in you know, violent speech in the, way that it's, in the way that things are labeled these days, but I mean... There is certainly something violent in the air, if nothing else. But let's get away from from that and get into what I want to say today. And it's it's an idea that I've repeated time and time again. I've truly been a broken record with this idea, and it's resist not evil. One of the heaviest ideas in biblical scripture, in my opinion. And there's a few different translations of that, and I don't have them on hand, but in some of the translations, in some of the biblical translations of that part of the Bible, of resist not evil, it actually specifies resist not an evil person. So it it even gets into saying an evil person, and that tends to be how I think of evil. Very rarely do, do we think of evil as we experience it as simply some sort of amorphous black cloud. Yeah, that's sort of a, you know, a pulpy sci-fi comic book idea, like a Forbidden Worlds comic from the 1950s or whenever those comics were made. You can kind of imagine the way that the essence of evil would be drawn. Or in a fantasy story, when someone casts some sort of evil spell, the way it's depicted. But we don't typically think of that as humans who experience some sort of evil. We tend to think of it as 
something that people act out. So it's interesting that, you know, in some translations of the Bible, it's resist not evil, which sounds more general, while in others it actually specifies an evil person. And I think you can go with both. Both are good ways of thinking of it. But the evil person side of it is interesting because it shows that that's what we interact with. And we tend to see evil in people. We don't tend to look at animals, and even if an animal mauls us, we don't tend to see them as evil creatures. So that, that's, we tend to assign evil to each other, to our fellow humans. And we tend to assign it to ourselves in some cases, but when someone recognizes their own evil, sometimes they have a tendency to embrace it. And that was something that I found so interesting in the days when I studied serial killers and murderers and some of the darkest people, you know, the people, the true evil people among us, is that some of them completely privately, of course, embraced this evil entity. Ted Bundy did. Danny Rowling. They didn't necessarily see it as the whole of who they were, but they still embraced this evil. But rarely do you hear about somebody accepting their own capacity for evil without embracing it. And I think it's important to recognize that in yourself. It's important to recognize that as a human being, in the same way that our understanding of evil often comes to us through the actions of other human beings, we ourselves are a human being, and that fact alone means that we have a capacity for evil. And sometimes when you resist evil in yourself too much... You make it a much larger part of your life. You almost develop this blind spot. You become so convinced that you are morally right, that you couldn't possibly behave in an evil way. And even if you do something heavy-handed, even if you do something violent, somehow that's not evil because you're serving a, a greater good. So we develop this blind spot when we resist evil in ourselves or we just embrace it fully, like these serial killers and school shooters. But because we all have the capacity for evil, we have to understand what it is. And in recognizing that you have the capacity for it, it doesn't mean that you yourself are fundamentally evil. And if anything, you're more likely to keep your own capacity for evil unfilled or unfulfilled, however you want to put it, if you recognize that capacity. And a lot of people have talked about this. This is not a revolutionary idea. In fact, I, <laughs> I think right now, more than ever, I don't want to say anything revolutionary, even if I did have a revolutionary thought. Not that I would censor myself, but I think people are so high on their own revolutionary role play that that's the last thing I would even want to participate in even in my own room under these Friday night lights 
But beyond the ways the evil can disguise itself as something unquestionably good, to overzealously resist even the most obvious evil is to play evil's game. And if you play that game, you play by evil's rules. And chances are you'll be unknowingly tempted toward evil yourself because that's the planet that you're going to revolve around. And if you're revolving around this planet of evil, the only currency you can trade in is a product of that planet's makeup. And the same can be said for the modes of communication you'll be forced to communicate with. I mean, you can just, being a product of Earth, being an Earthling, if you want to communicate with the Earth's creatures, you must use earthly tools, earthly methods. And the same is true for evil, which might not be a sphere, like a planet, but it's still a a geographical entity akin to a world. And when we think about evil, we almost think of it as a world. We almost think of it as a place. It's sort of in some crossroads between being a creature, a place, an idea. Evil's one of the most transcendent ideas that we have. Because it does seem to be both a place, a person, as well as some sort of abstraction. And we don't lose that idea. We don't lose the idea of evil. It just seems to be there no matter what we do, no matter how much we try to eradicate it, no matter what word we call it. And if you're resisting evil and you become in part of this fixed orbit where you're now a moon orbiting this planet of evil, even though you're trying to resist it, you have this fixed relationship with it. And you will end up speaking an evil language and trading in an evil currency in an attempt to combat or reach evil. And at worst, it's like a cycle of abuse where the automatic response to having evil done to you is to do evil to others. You hear about people who were abused, unconsciously passing it on, both consciously and unconsciously. It becomes a currency. And that can happen too when you try to fight something. That can happen when you try to fight evil directly or you think you are fighting it. Is that you end up using the tools of evil and then those just become your tools. But uh, it sounds like science fiction, but blindly resisting evil turns you into a moon orbiting a planet of evil, or whatever modern placeholder word you want to substitute for evil. And we have plenty of these words, and they all mean the same thing to us, no matter how hard we try to force some specific definition onto them. (sighs) And I guess what I notice more than anything, and I'm noticing this right now as I say this, is that our response to the idea behind these words, no matter what word we use as a substitute for evil, 
our response always tends to be the same on a collective level, on a personal level, doesn't really make a difference. We always have this denial, this moral panic, and these hurried attempts at a quick fix. And there's this self-righteousness that goes along with that. There's a self-righteousness that goes along with those responses where we believe we can help others achieve some kind of sudden enlightenment or salvation from evil. And otherwise, if we can't do that, if we can't save somebody or if we can't get them to start thinking the way we think they should start thinking about this evil, to start behaving in the way that we think they need to behave in response to evil, we eventually destroy them. If they don't comply, we eventually destroy them because we see them as uh, either a product or, or somehow tainted by that evil. Oh, you don't want to be saved? Oh, you're not going to accept this sudden enlightenment? I'm, I'm your teacher now, and I'm going to enlighten you. And you don't want that? Oh, well, I guess we got to destroy you. And we're seeing that now. We are seeing that right now. And when we do that, when we go from, oh, let me help you achieve sudden enlightenment. Let me help you achieve salvation from evil. Let me deliver you from evil. And then we turn around and are like, oh, you don't want to be saved? Well, we're going to destroy you. It's almost like a mafia protection racket. Oh, hey, pay us protection money. And we'll protect your store. Oh, but if you don't give us the money, we're going to be the ones to destroy your store. And that actually plays out pretty closely to what's going on right now, too. I meant that just to be an analogy or a metaphor, and it's actually very close to what's happening now. Put this sign in your store window. But even then, we don't believe you. Because that's the thing, too. Where when someone becomes very self-righteous and they try to convince you to do something, to think a certain way. Even if you go along with it, sometimes that isn't enough. And that's got to be so humiliating. When you give in and that's still not enough. And that happens so often. It's what happens when we've had these forced apologies. When some celebrity or some public figure does or says something wrong and they give some public speech, which is such a weird performative... What is that? Let's get this celebrity to stand at a podium. Let's get this politician, this person that we think is important enough to think about. And let's get them to apologize for something that they didn't do to us, but we don't like it. And then when they apologize, we're going to you know, turn the gears a little more and, you know, we're going to jab them even more and say, oh, you didn't really mean it. Apologize now. Oh, you didn't mean it. That happens a lot. It's, it's a common tactic that's been used the last few years. And that's got to feel horrible where you're already giving this fake apology and you know it's fake. And even if you did do something wrong, it's just such a weird performance. Not that people shouldn't acknowledge when they've done wrong, especially to the people that they've wronged. I believe in that. I believe in taking responsibility. 
but it's so strange when someone is forced to do something and the people that force them to do it don't accept what they force them, that person to do. So don't do it to begin with. Don't apologize unless you sincerely mean it. And unless you know that that apology could be thrown right back at you in an attempt to humiliate you further. But it's, the problem is, is we, we become evil in the process. We try to confront evil. We try to resist evil. We try to fight evil. And when people don't want to join our fight against evil, we're like, well, we're just going to destroy you then. Because if you're not fighting evil, you're with evil. And so we're going to destroy you. And of course, we're going to become evil in the process. Because what is evil? Evil is the destroyer. Because all things will fall apart. All things die. All things decay. It's not that, it's not that goodness means, oh, this is going to be exactly the way it's going to be forever, and it's never gonna, nothing's ever going to happen to this thing. That's not what goodness is. That's not what purity is. Purity isn't permanence. Even good things fall apart. But you can always notice evil because it is not just letting things decay at their normal rate. It is actively trying to undermine and destroy. Often in the name of self-righteousness. Often in the name of some unquestionable good thing. And we leave no room for nuance or misunderstanding, and we lose our patience and sense of time. We limit our range of motion. Our capacity for measurement is greatly reduced. And you can't have a conversation under those circumstances. It's reptilian. But I think reptiles even have a little more nuance to them than that. But one thing that's interesting to me is that the most cliche as well as the most esoteric beliefs surrounding personal empowerment advise you to live as if you are already the thing that you want to be. And Mulder on the X-Files, he messed himself up with this. He had that poster that said, I want to believe. It's a famous poster. I had a girlfriend who had a, a replica of it. In Mulder's office, he had this poster that says, I want to believe, and there's a UFO. And that's Mulder, that's Mulder in a nutshell. That's Fox Mulder in a nutshell. He wants to believe in UFOs, in UFOs. UFOs. But what's funny about that is it, it should have dropped the want. It says, I want to believe, but you know, as far as personal empowerment goes, it should have dropped the want and just said, I believe. If Mulder had a, po- uh, a picture of a UFO on his wall and it just said, I believe, it probably would have given him some added confidence. Because <laughs> that's what self-help teaches you. You don't want, you act out what you want. And you remove the want from the equation, and that's how you become that thing. Uh, But uh, like most conspiracy theorists, Mulder was a masochist, and he didn't really want to be proven right. Which is why the X-Files might as well have been called the persecution of Fox Mulder. 
at least after a few seasons. I mean, once they got into that, the whole government conspiracy angle, when that became just the ongoing story, not that it was bad, you know, not that it was a bad storyline or anything, but just once the X-Files got caught up in that, it might as well have been called the persecution of Fox Mulder. And what would Mulder have done if the government eventually said, gee, Fox, uh, you have a good point. What would he have done? I don't even think he would know. I don't think Mulder would know, because Mulder was resisting evil at that point. His story became validated more by evil and his relationship to that evil than what he actually believed in. It's sort of a backward validation, but it's the most that a moon can expect from the planet it orbits. And I know I'm being too hard on Mulder. I know. But good thing he's fictional and not someone I know personally, so I don't have to worry about offending him. But really, those one-off monster episodes of the X-Files were better because Mulder was a hero who set an example through his forward conduct, and he wasn't a martyr in an abusive, committed relationship with the cigarette-smoking man. And that would come later. Because that's just all I think about. You know, I remember those monster of the week storylines, as people call them. And they're very memorable. And those are my favorite episodes. The squeezed tombs, you know, that was a storyline they stretched out over two different episodes, I think, in the first season. That basically is the X-Files movie, as far as I'm concerned. It's about a movie length when you put those episodes together. And it's very eerie and memorable great writing. But when I think about some of the, the seasons after that, I just it, it just seems like, oh, Mulder revolving around the cigarette-smoking man and this government persecution, and uh, it, just, it just becomes Mulder's resistance against this evil government. He's just a moon orbiting this planet of corruption and evil. But fortunately, Mulder never became evil himself. But that's because he was a protagonist in a fictional TV show, and we were still a few years away from Tony Soprano. Protagonists hadn't gone bad, or they didn't do irredeemable things by that point. We'd still have a few years to go before HBO would just completely capitalize on the anti-hero, if you can even call Tony Soprano an anti-hero. He's a piece of shit who you have a little more sympathy for because you see what his family life is like or something. And I love Tony Soprano. But uh, as a real person, as you, as a real person that you are, you don't have the luxury of a writing team who will keep you from becoming evil no matter what you want to believe. We have this tendency to want to believe in this hazy version of good while fully believing in a solid form of evil. And that gives evil a massive advantage and skews the balance. You know, I don't even know that calling us a moon at that point is even appropriate. In our attempt to resist evil, we revolve around that evil more like some sort of atmospheric gas than a moon.
And that's how I feel when I see someone who's acting in some sort of act of self-righteousness. But I see so much capacity for evil in that. They don't seem like a solid form. They don't seem like a beautiful little moon orbiting a planet. They seem like some sort of nasty, gaseous substance. They don't seem to have much form to them. And it's always important to remember, too, that no human being is wholly right or completely wrong, and that's what makes us true to ourselves. You know, as... uh, Warlord, the band, as they sang, I am freedom, I am tyranny. And being a self-aware human means knowing you are fully capable of either one at any time, even at the same time. You are fully capable of either one of these qualities at any time or even the same time. Good and evil, freedom and tyranny, often one in the name of the other. Because when you resist evil, you become a tyrant if you succeed, because you think you have to banish evil. And your definition of evil, especially if you're a modern human being, is something so specific. And apparently only you figured it out. Apparently you're the first person who just got it 100% right. And that's the fuel behind self-righteousness. That's very much the fuel behind self-righteousness, is this idea that after all of this time and all of this struggle, all of these smart, self-aware people throughout history just reacting to nature, reacting to the time in which they live, that you're, the, you're just part of the first group that got it fully right. Wow. But, you know, it's, it's, the thing is you learn what it takes to keep yourself in check in order to find a balance between right, wrong, good, evil, whatever words you want to use, whatever substitutes you want to throw in and use to the same degree that you would use these universal ideas. It doesn't matter what you call them. We're all generally operating from some place. Whenever you have an idea about anything, you're often coming from a place of right, wrong, good, or evil. And any placeholder that you want to insert in there instead of those words is still going to be used the same way, and you're going to take it just as seriously. And don't let pop spirituality confuse the meaning of mindfulness. Because what mindfulness is, is it's awareness of the fine point you are balancing on at any, any and every moment. It's not just sometimes. It's not just when you meditate. It's not just when you listen to Eckhart Tolle, 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 however you say his name. It's not just when you you read a, a motivational quote. Mindfulness is just awareness that you are always balancing on the finest of fine points. And you're managing to do it. You're managing to balance on that point if you stay aware, if you stay self-aware, if you learn how to keep yourself in check, if you understand that you have the capacity for good, evil, right, and wrong in every moment to varying degrees, and that you are aware of that within yourself, and you're also aware of it around you. That's how you stay balanced. 
on the, the, the thinnest little needle, but yet somehow you're able to do it. And that's what Krishna communicates to Arjuna during his dilemma over which side to take in the inevitable battle between the warring factions in the Bhagavad Gita. It's a dilemma over right and wrong. Which, which side of this war am I going to be on? And Krishna is this manifestation of something righteous and pure beyond humanity, but he takes an earthly form in order to communicate with a person, not unlike the way we see evil as some sort of human form too. But Krishna comes, he's godly, he has godlike wisdom, and he's advising Arjuna, who has the ultimate dilemma. Which side of this battle should I be on? And the warring factions in the Bhagavad Gita are, of course, blood cousins of each other. And that's the perfect illustration of every dilemma inside and around us. Every conflict on planet Earth is a family dispute. And it's not a naive or oversimplified thought to anyone who understands family dynamics. You have to think of every conflict on Earth as a family dispute. And that's what's so perfect about the Bhagavad Gita, the fact that this conflict is going to be between cousins, between relatives. It's horseshoe theory. They're so close. They are so similar. So what is it that's separating them? What is that space? What is that space that makes something a horseshoe rather than an oval? And that's the space to focus on. That's the emptiness that you should pay attention to, if you can. If you can learn to pay attention to that emptiness, you might learn something. You might learn that there's actually nothing separating these people. Even though they're disconnected, even though it's a horseshoe and not an oval, there's really nothing separating these people. It's a family dispute. But as Krishna says, Arjuna will eventually have to fight. But as a reader, it's wonderful to see that this powerful multidimensional dialogue precedes that moment. The fight might be inevitable. Arjuna might have to participate in this fight. But there is this this profound conversation that takes place leading up to it. And it doesn't directly help Arjuna become less confused. Krishna doesn't say, oh, well, choose this side. Why don't you choose this side? That never happens in the conversation. But it does help Arjuna clear up who he is and who he isn't. And that's what all this comes down to. There's nobody who's going to tell you what's truly right or what's truly wrong. Because if you listen to everybody you'll find that they all have some kind of argument, some kind of rationale. And if you don't believe that, well, you know, honestly, like if you don't, if you don't believe that everybody has some sort of rationale for why they do what they do, barring people who are just complete psychopaths, and there's no way you can possibly believe that 50% of the country are psychopaths. If you think that, you might be a psychopath. <laughs> you know, like if you think that 50% of America are psychopaths, then you 
should get yourself in check immediately. But, uh, you know, you have to understand that everybody does have some kind of rationale. Even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't understand it, you have to recognize that there is some kind of rationale there. Doesn't mean you have to, doesn't mean you can't do what you're going to do or do what you think is right. But understanding that they are your cousins too. Understanding that the only thing separating you is this little gap, this little gap of emptiness. And first and foremost, focusing on who you are, understanding who you are and who you're not. Because that's like a guide that will guide you if, if the time comes where you have to do something. And maybe you won't. No matter what anybody tells you, maybe you won't have to do something. Nobody can tell you what your role is, which is why you have to figure out what that is to you. You know, you can have this conversation with yourself. And if you're feeling daring by 2020 standards, you can have that conversation with others too. But unfortunately, we have to be very careful about that. And I don't know any other way to deliver yourself from evil. That's a phrase. Deliver yourself from evil. I don't know any other way aside from having a conversation with yourself and trying to find some objective wisdom, something like Krishna. It doesn't mean you have to actually believe that Krishna is there talking to you. But this kind of relates to deity yoga, which I talked about. You can still visualize something outside of yourself. And if that can remove you from your frenzied emotional state, well, maybe that is Krishna talking to you. If you can remove yourself from whatever you're feeling right now that makes you unable to sit there and weigh out the balance of what it means to stand on that fine needle point that is being a living human being with a spirit, and a spirit that's often in its own internal conflict. You know, if you can find some way to get out of your own head and have some sort of objective assistance from something, you know, why can't that be Krishna or something else? Why can't that be a deity? And I, I really don't know any other way to deliver yourself from evil aside from keeping yourself in check. by having some sort of internal dialogue or conversation. And it doesn't have to be, you don't even have to use the word evil. You can deliver yourself from anything, however you want to define it. But at the end of the day, if you need to, to deliver yourself from it, if you feel like there is this thing that you have to deliver yourself from, it's probably just going to be a synonym for evil at the end of the day. But the focus is and should always be on delivering yourself first and foremost. Right now, people seem to think that they have to, de to deliver others from evil. That's self-righteousness. And maybe there's a little bit of that in what I'm saying right now. But I'm saying it as much for me as anyone. What I'm saying right now is as much my own conversation, my own dialogue, not with Krishna. That's for my own private time. 
I only talk with Krishna in my private time. I would never do it on this show. You know I don't have guests on this show. But really, I mean, I'm, this is preach what you need, what I always say. Maybe there's a hint of self-righteousness. Maybe I'm calling something else evil and my, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I have my own moral superiority here. I don't know. I'm always willing to believe that because that's how I keep myself in check. That's exactly the process that I'm talking about right here is the fact that I do second guess myself and that's what it is. You must second guess yourself. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, enough of that thought. Enough of that thought. Uh, we're all in this reality tunnel that we share. And that's a phrase that I, I believe I first heard the phrase reality tunnel from Robert Anton Wilson. I don't believe he came up with it. But it feels as relevant as it ever has. Reality tunnel. That's your news feed on your social media account. It's what the algorithm is showing you. It's who you talk to. It's what you pay attention to. And, you know, I mentioned earlier visiting my friend and her other friend was there and, you know, her family was there and these dogs hung out. And it's so funny because those experiences just take you out of whatever it was you were in. It really shifts your reality tunnel, as it should. Because, you know, you can spend your morning, you know, and, and that's something I experience. I try to, I guess that's where I, I try to maintain some balance is, you know, spending part of the morning, I, you know, meditating, drinking coffee, reading Gulliver's Travels. You know, and the books vary. I read a lot, but the books vary. And right now it's Gulliver's Travels. And each book you read is going to be a different reality tunnel. And it's weird because I was thinking like a week ago I was reading this Mind Beyond Death, this Buddhist, you know, uh Varjayana, or whatever it's called, Vajrayana, I don't even know. These are just words to me. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a certain school of Buddhism, mind beyond death, deals with. And I was totally in that while I was reading that. And in that moment, it just seemed like that was just where my brain was at and how it's going to be. And then you start reading Gulliver's Travels, and then now your mind is in that book. Even when you're not reading that book, it still affects what you're doing and how you're thinking when you're doing other things. And that's so bizarre, but that's just part of the reality tunnel. And the same is true for, you know, what you're looking at online, which, which side of the current events you're paying attention to. And I'm making an effort to pay attention to as many facets of it as possible. I've talked on here a lot about breaking the algorithms because the algorithms will put you in a certain reality tunnel and you will not see the same things that other people see. You will not see the same events happening that other people are seeing. You will not necessarily see the same ideas. You might see parodies of them. You might see mockeries. You might see straw men, you know, hung up and burned. But you're not going to be seeing the same thing that everybody else is seeing. And maybe we've lived in that time during different eras. Maybe when everybody watched Walter Cronkite at the same time every day, even if that was skewed, even if they, were, they had an agenda, you know, even if you're watching state-sponsored television in some communist hellhole, you know, at least you're experiencing the same reality tunnel as everybody else. 
But what's so strange right now, what's so chaotic is that so many different people are experiencing different reality tunnels. And there's this shared reality. There is this objective reality that we all have some perspective on, that we can all describe in our most honest moments when we're not trying to explain how reality works. When we just give our honest-to-God description of what our reality is, we are all seeing something that we share, but yet we get into these tunnels, and then this technology and this media and these politicians and these celebrities and these people, they all usher us down these tunnels even deeper. And that's why you need to break the algorithm. That's why you need to stick your head in different holes. You might always have your head stuck in a hole like, a, like an ostrich, but, you know, stick your head in different holes. <laughs> How come nobody's ever said that? Again, I'm not trying to be revolutionary here. We don't need anybody to be re more revolutionary than what's going on right now. You know, I, I, but, you know, if, if we all are going to inevitably be sticking our heads in the sand, let's try to stick our head in different holes now and again. And that's what breaking an algorithm is. But there's so much intuition, and there's something ancient in all of this, too. And this is where I get pretty far out there as if I'm not already, but still, this is where I might sound more deeply, I don't know, I, I, might, I might really sound like I'm in deep outer space when I get into this, but it feels like it's not deep outer space, it feels like it's some sort of deep inner space. You heard of deep outer space, well this is deep inner space, I really do feel like this goes into a deeper internal place than anything else. I guess the best way to put it would be we all intuitively remember the way back to our childhood houses. It's like remembering your best childhood friend's home phone number. There are some things that just, for whatever reason, they are just in you. And those are formative experiences. Those are things that you experienced as a kid. But for whatever reason, you always know the way back to your childhood house. And there's a reason why people often want to go back. Like if you watch a documentary about somebody, in so many documentaries, they take the, the subject of the documentary back to his old neighborhood and he wants to knock on the door and like meet the people who live in his childhood house and maybe even go inside just to say, oh, I, I live there. I, or I, I lived there. And maybe I'm not wrong to say I live there because there's a part of that person's brain that does still live in that childhood home even though new people are there even though they're an adult who's moved on, literally physically moved on, there's this part of that person who still lives in that house, and that's why they want to approach it. I mean, my best childhood friend, last time I hung out with him, we were in our hometown, and his parents moved out of his childhood home when we were maybe ninth grade. And he never really got past it, even though their new home was bigger and nicer his old house, we, we would walk by it. Sometimes we would go drink or we would smoke pot and we would just take walks around the old town and we would just stop in front of his old house and we would just look at it. And I could just see, and he used to talk like when, he, when after they moved out, he's like, someday I want to buy that house again. 
But that's something you see that it's not just in documentaries. It's something that people do. There's something about your childhood home that is just so in that just intuitively takes you there, and you'll never forget how to get there. And you'll never forget a lot of the details about it. And you know, thinking about that too, though, like my childhood home, some people we know bought it when we sold it. And I never went back. Even though we still lived in the same town for a little while, I just refused to go back. I didn't want to see anybody else living in that house. Not because it would be emotionally difficult or anything. I just I just decided that I was never going to go back there, even though we had these close family friends living there. And that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know, it's like, like why? Like they had parties and stuff and, and family events, and I didn't go. Because I just made this decision where I was like, I'm not going to go back to my childhood house and not have it be mine. And it's not even because I was that attached to it. I don't even know how to put it into words, but I drive by it usually when I'm in town. And I would probably feel weird about it now with my mom having died. I might feel a little weird, but maybe not because everything's so weird. And I feel okay with everything too somehow. Despite the tone of this episode, like I said, I don't really like the tone that I've been hitting on necessarily because I feel okay. And if, if this is the, if this is some sort of apocalypse, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean the big Ragnarok or the big, if this is some sort of, if we're going to see some sort of just great turmoil, even if it's temporary, because I see any apocalypse as temporary anyway. I see the flower blooming in the ashes of Ragnarok. That's just my philosophy. That keeps me going, and it's not wishful thinking. It's just what I believe happens. But uh, I was talking about childhood houses, and now I'm talking about Ragnarok again. Um, But I guess what I mean is just, you know, I'm not necessarily attached to the world that is changing right now. I'm not necessarily attached to the past. I'm not necessarily attached to my childhood home. But I guess the point is, is that I still know the way there. It's still in me. It's just in you somewhere. And similarly, although a bit different, we also have this ancient vein running through us, and it only takes the right circumstances to activate that part of you. Some call it ancestral DNA. But you don't really have to have a name for it to know that it's there. I think of it almost as this ancient invisible vein that scientists and doctors haven't been able to recognize yet, if they ever will. But you can feel it in you. And certain experiences just, they activate it. And you're sudden, you suddenly feel, it's almost like walking up to your childhood home. But it goes back much further. And it does create some line connecting you to who came before you in some form. Because as much as I think of the material body as this temporary thing, and the soul as something that just inhabits it for a time, there still is something freaking insane to being in this body, and to know that this body is made up of cells that can be traced back to your ancestors. To people that you can't even comprehend, but the way that they experience the world within this body 
carried on to you in some way. There is this ancestral vein. There is this ancient thing. But you don't have to call it anything to know that it's there. You just feel it sometimes, and I feel it right now. And it... Uh, it, it doesn't matter what your life has been like or how you were raised. The process feels familiar because there's an early biological memory somewhere inside of you that can become activated at any time. Especially if you clear the path for your intuition to speak, I feel like this becomes very apparent when certain situations present themselves. And it's terrifying, it's intoxicating, and you should develop a personal discipline to keep it in check at all times. And this is especially true if you're caught up in the false glow of moral righteousness. Because recorded history will show you what happens when you don't keep that in check. And the list of horrible examples is truly endless. And I believe many of those examples, much of the horror and cruelty that we see throughout history, I believe that came about when something was activated in people that felt almost like home. Because that can really get you going. And I, I could get more specific about it, but I feel like I'd rather keep this general, and I feel like I'll have more to say about this. And it, this might sound really out there, but I feel that it's really in there. I don't feel like it's out somewhere else. I feel like this is something that is inside of us. And, uh, you know, phrases like ancestral DNA that people talk about, I think that only scratches the surface. And it is terrifying. And that's very much why I have a personal discipline, why I'm not jumping into anything, why I'm thinking of the Bhagavad Gita and trying to observe and reflect as much as I can for the time being. And anybody who says that that's wrong, well, they're caught in the false glow of moral righteousness. They are. And they are terrifying. Not that I don't love them. I love the people who are terrifying me right now. And I love the people who are terrifying them. And it's only through the development of some sort of personal discipline and you know the breakthroughs of a spiritual practice that I feel like I can even say that and mean it. And it's something you have to exercise constantly. I mean, I saw the video of the, you know the the kid uh, pushing the old lady over on the side of the street, and she hits her head on a fire hydrant. And you know, I I saw that, and I said, well, this is so cruel and hateful. But I have to love even him, this young black man who pushes this old lady, this old white lady, and she hits her head on a fire hydrant. There's nothing. It's deliberate. It's terrible. And it was making its rounds online. It just happened a couple days ago. And I saw that and I said, oh, this is going to fuel a lot of people's hatred. And I saw that and I, I, and I was, just thought, this is disgusting. But I have to love even him. And just because I love that old lady, too, 
doesn't mean that I have to discriminate when it comes to these suffering souls that we encounter and we see, and right now we are hearing them so loudly. I don't like that this is so dramatic. That's kind of what I mean about the tone. I just don't like that what I have to say is just so damn dramatic right now. But I don't know what else to say. I really don't. I have funny stuff I'll say. I have goofy stuff. There's probably some goofy stuff in here. But it's the same way I felt too. And I mean, uh, you know, it's it, when you see these police brutality videos, I'm just like, this is horrible. But I have to love the cop. I have to love the person getting tear gassed, who's getting just knocked over for no reason. And, you know, let's go back to the X-Files for a second. On the X-Files, another one of the slogans on the show, I don't know that Mulder ever actually said this, but at the, during the intro to the show, it would say these phrases, and one of them was, trust no one. And I, for whatever reason, I've been thinking about the X-Files, <laughs> if that's not obvious. I haven't watched it in a very long time, but the X-Files, one of the slogans was, trust no one. And my answer to that is, trust everyone. Because when you trust everyone, it actually has the same result as trusting no one. If you trust everyone, even the people who are in conflict with each other, even the people whose views seemingly cancel each other out, well, that has the same net effect as if you just didn't trust either one. But it's a more constructive way of seeing it, and it allows you to actually hear what they have to say. And it's sort of that Zen koan idea again, where it's like, just because their ideas cancel each other out doesn't mean that you can't potentially find value in them. And in that way, you should trust everyone rather than trust no one. Because if you trust no one, you just aren't going to get anything from anyone. You're going to think that everything exists in this vacuum that only you occupy, and that's a surefire path to self-righteousness and moral superiority. So trust everyone. And that way you might actually learn a little bit from each person, but the net effect is that they'll still cancel each other out. So it's not like you have to choose a fighter. It's not like you have to pick one. It's not like you have to make a bet on one or the other. So trust everyone, and you might get something from everyone, but still not have to you know commit yourself to one corner or another. And that's hard to do, but... You can develop a discipline. You can practice that. And it might, you might not believe it, but you might eventually get there. And where that goes, I don't know. But I know that I'd rather be there than the alternative, which is trusting no one. And we go back to the X-Files again. Another one, it used to say, trust no one. And then sometimes during the intro, it would say, the truth is out there. Well, I think you know where I'm going to go with this one. I was talking about how there's deep outer space, but there's also deep inner space. And, you know, you can, yeah, the truth is out there, but the truth is also in there. The truth is in there. You go there with it as well. And don't forget that, because sometimes we think that we have to take these external truths and force them upon ourselves when maybe that truth is in there. And that's what the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita is. It's Krishna trying to get Arjuna to understand that the truth is in you. 
And there might be this competing external forces, and you might eventually get sucked into it. You probably will, because that's just the nature of the world. It draws you in, whether you like it or not. Your environment forces you to act. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some truth inside of you. But it should be something that you think objectively and critically about. Because I think that truth is similar to this idea of this ancestral DNA or this ancient vein running through you. And I I, I want to keep this short, but it's already... Who cares? It's Friday Night Lights. Who cares? It's after midnight on a Friday. We'll go as long as we want. Um, but uh, <laughs> I was looking back at these emails with a friend of mine from March... 2019, and I've thought about this ever since COVID hit, Coroni Violent, Coroni Vi, Coroni Violent. Ever since lockdown and Corona Vi hit, Coroni Vi, I was thinking about these, this email with a friend of mine from March 2019, and he and I are collaborators and some stuff, and he, I basically just flipped out on him, not like an angry flip out, but I told him, and he probably wouldn't like me talking about this, but who cares? Um, but he, he wanted me to like do some stuff and I was basically like, I'm, I'm wiping my slate clean for 2020. And he, he was like, you keep talking about 2020, like, what do you think's going to happen? Cause I guess this conversation had come up between us multiple times and I was rereading our email exchange about it. Cause he was like, you keep mentioning, you know, 2020 and like, and I remember this conversation because I was basically saying, I don't want to have any, I don't want to add any more, even though that 2020 was seven months away at this time, I was like, I don't want to have anything else on my plate for 2020. Basically, I felt like 2020 was going to be a great reckoning and I'm not claiming to be Nostradamus, but just intuitively, I felt like 2020, something was going to happen. And I said to him when he asked me that, when he asked me, like, what do you, you keep bringing up 2020, what do you think is going to happen? Because he was like, I think, basically he thought that 2020 was going to be relatively normal, like we were just going to plug along like we always do. And I was just like, you know, in response, I said, I hope that 2020 is underwhelming. I hope that 2020 is underwhelming. If it is, I'll be happy. But I, I said, I just have this feeling that everything we saw in 2016, socially and politically, is going to explode even larger. But boy, I had no idea it was going to be like this. <laughs> you know, I didn't, you know, I, you know, my mom died in December 2019. I felt like, I feel like she somehow wasn't meant to be a part of this. Not that she couldn't have handled it. She was a very tough woman. But I, it's not that I don't think she could have handled it. But I just don't, somehow I just don't think her spirit was meant to to be a part of this as it is right now. And maybe her spirit is in some baby somewhere. Maybe she was reincarnated. I don't know. But I, I just don't think she was meant to be a part of this. I feel like she died at a time that just makes some sort of sense to me. And then everything else that has transpired this year, even though I couldn't have predicted coronavi, and I couldn't have predicted that this communist anarchist takeover would have happened this quickly and this severely. There was something, you know, not to, I'm not even trying to be self-congratulatory, but there was something that I was trying to tell my friend 
and other people too. I talked to a bunch of people about this, but I, I was reading this email exchange from March 2019, and I it was just I was just saying like I want to have every I want to have my entire slate wiped clean for 2020, and I was freaking out about it in a weird way. And I do feel like I've had this weird premonition about 2020. It's And it's not just that it was an election year. I knew that would be a big thing. I knew that it being an election year would mirror just the venom and nastiness of 2016. I knew that that would, it would mirror that at the very least. But I just did have some feeling that it was going to cut even deeper. But I, I had no idea it was going to be like this. I just, but I, I did have some sort of just premonition that shit was really going to go down in some way. And I didn't want it to. And I said to my mom, you know, a couple weeks before she died, I was just feeling kind of low. And I remember I said to her, I was like, I just want something really big to happen. And I didn't mean like some news event, some newsworthy event. I, I really, I said that meaning that I, I both wanted and sort of expected something world-changing to happen. And I have some guilt over just even saying that now, like, you know, I didn't want this necessarily, but you can't necessarily choose what that is going to be. And since I'm being really self-indulgent in this moment right now, too, I did a drawing and it was just one of my more abstract drawings, kind of in the vein of drawing a lot of the drawings I do, you know, these days, I'm not drawing a lot right now, but just kind of what I've been doing the last couple of years, these kind of formless drawings with reinforced shapes. Just, it's very intuitive. I don't overthink it. It's not necessarily what I would consider the coolest thing in the world. But it's just kind of what feels natural on the occasions that I want to draw now. But I named this drawing an ancient opinion slash the beginning is coming. I think I get that. I got that right. <laughs> I'd have to look. An ancient opinion slash the beginning is coming. And uh, I don't even know, it just came to me. And an ancient opinion is exactly what I mean when I talk about this ancestral vein that runs through you. I, I think I said it was an ancient vein. And that's what I mean by an ancient opinion. It's almost like there is this ancient view or opinion that you have inside of you that just has to be activated when the circumstances are right. And maybe it is when things, when the clock hits zero again. Maybe that ancient opinion becomes relevant, becomes activated when the clock hits zero, and it certainly feels like it's either hitting zero or will hit zero. I don't know. But the beginning sure feels like it's coming, and that's sort of a, a Ragnarokian idea itself, where after the end, the beginning comes again. It's the cycle. The beginning is when the flowers bloom. It's wiping the slate clean. And as I was saying to my friend, I, I, I need to have my slate wiped clean for 2020. I can't do anything else. I, I can't promise anything else. It just doesn't feel, it feels disingenuous for me to agree to in doing anything. And that was how I felt then, and I was kind of freaking out about it. I don't know what it was. I'm, I did, I'm not Nostradamus, or as Bobby Bacala from The Sopranos said, you know, Quasimodo. <laughs> Calls Nostradamus Quasimodo. But 
you know, I'm not Nostradamus. I'm, I'm certainly not Quasimodo. But I just had some feeling that I had to just, you know, free up and not take on anything else, even seven months before all this. And I thought my mom dying was that big thing. You know, when I said to her a couple of weeks before she died, I just want something big to happen. And she didn't say anything in response. Like, she didn't, you shouldn't really have anything. What do you say to someone who says that? But then when she died a couple of weeks later, I remember thinking about me saying that, and I was like, oh, I didn't mean this. I didn't mean my mom dying. But then as 2020 has unfolded since then, it seems like it's just one big thing after another. And despite how I might sound right now, I might sound out of my mind. I don't know. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't sound out of their mind? I've, hopefully I sound, wants to go with this stupid thing again, hopefully I don't sound out of my mind. Hopefully I just sound in my mind. And now's the time to be in your mind. Because it seems like everybody's trying to get into everybody else's minds. That's what seems to be going on. And it, I think it, it plays directly to this idea of social media as this way of accessing, it's the most direct way we've had of accessing the collective consciousness. And in that way, we really are trying to get into other people's minds and we're voluntarily letting them into ours. And it's not just when you use this social media platform. It's kind of like what I was talking about with uh, reading a book, where it's not just you're in the reality tunnel of that book, not just when you're sitting down and reading it, but when you're currently reading a book, it sort of impacts your entire life during that time. It sort of gets you into a certain frame of reference. And that's especially true for nonfiction. And right now, people are reading a lot of nonfiction. They're reading a lot of history. They're reading these books about white fragility. And they're in that reality tunnel. Because what you're reading, what you're paying attention to, that really colors the world around you. And I guess I should close this episode out because I could go on forever about this. But I really believe that that Buddhist idea that everything we see is as much an illusion as our dreams are. And that doesn't, it's not a way to downplay the lives that we live. You know, it's not, a, it's not a way of downplaying the reality that we experience in the so-called waking world. But if you can create a dream world in your brain when you're laying down asleep in the waking world, and you can experience emotions and reactions, and you can feel just as invested in that dream world while you are in it, as transient as it is, what does that tell you about waking life? And the book I read last week, the reality tunnel I was in last week of Mind Beyond Death, that book, that's what it says. It says, you know, life is as much an illusion as anything else that we imagine. And it's, it's different in its own way. <laughs> I'll give it that. I'll give waking life that. I'll say that it's different in its own way. But what's going on right now, just the rapid escalation of everything the disconnect from our previous the the previous logic that we had about the world cuz i think i hopefully everybody can agree on that that we have disconnected from the previous logic that we were operating from that we were using and uh 
it's just, I don't know. I don't know what to say about whether the world is illusory, an illusion. I don't know what to say about that because I can't prove it. But the things that I'm seeing and the way that we are experiencing these individual reality tunnels through algorithms, through these closed social groups, through this shutting out of other opinions while trying to get into other people's heads. And when, when they don't let us or they don't let us do what we want in our, in our psychic invasion of them, the idea that we have to destroy them, Maybe it's something we've always done. Maybe this is a cycle we've always been through. It's the first time that I've been through it. I can tell you that this doesn't happen every year. I can tell you that this doesn't happen like clockwork, you know, every 34 years. I've been alive 34 years, and, you know, yeah, there might have been a few years early on that I don't remember. But I do. In the same way that, you know, someone can be traumatized you know, at, at one years old, and it, and it still has an impact on them. I feel like I would know if reality had gone through this cycle in my lifetime. So I can say within, you know, I, I can I can say with some amount of uh, confidence that I don't feel in the last thirty four years that we've been through this process, but I don't know that it doesn't happen at some kind of rate. And maybe there's no exact rate. Maybe it's not something you can measure or time. But I do believe we've probably been through this before. In fact, you know, I just intuitively know it. Because that ancient vein running through me, that ancient opinion, seems to be speaking. And it seems to know that this is all sort of familiar. And there's a strange comfort to that. Sort of like knowing the way to your childhood home. Just like there's a comfort to that. There is something through all of this. Through all of this uncertainty, through all of this chaos, through this suspension of logic, there's still something in what I am experiencing, and I don't believe I'm alone but there is still something that I'm experiencing that I would describe as home. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 